This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. All right, you chipmunks. Ready to sing your song? I'll say we are. Yeah, let's sing it now. Okay, Simon? Okay. Okay, Theodore? Okay. Okay, Alvin? Alvin? So, I don't know if you're aware of it, but Christmas is coming up this Tuesday. And for kids all over the country, that means one thing. Toys. I want an official Red Rider carbon action 2 inch airways while arrive. No. Shoot your eye out. While the BB gun that Ralphie Parker wants in the 1983 movie A Christmas Story, the official Red Rider carbide action 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time is an increasingly unlikely gift in these safety-conscious times. The attitude is the same. We make our kids happy at Christmas by getting them stuff they want. Now, I'm not being crabby about this. I was as bad as anybody as a kid. But it is all pretty interesting. Toys have changed a lot since the 1950s when Alvin the Chipmunk wanted a hula hoop and Ralphie wanted a BB gun. And they've changed dramatically since the mass market for toys emerged in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But in a lot of ways, the way that we think about toys hasn't changed all that much. Today on Fordham Conversations, we are taking a look back at the history of the modern market for toys. A little later, we'll also look at another playful aspect of marketing, the commercial jingle. But first, my guest on the show today is David Hamlin. Hamlin's an assistant professor of history at Fordham, and he is the author of the book Work and Play, which is out now from the University of Michigan Press. Hamlin joined me in the studio to talk about how we use toys, what toys say about us, and why Germany plays a much bigger role in all of this than we might have expected. David Hamlin, welcome. Ah, Thank you very much for having me. So just first off, just tell me basically about your work on toys. Actually, the original idea was from my advisor who had gone to a meeting and listened to an American historian of amusement and toys who told this little tale of the... A gentleman, I've unfortunately forgotten his name, who built Coney Island. And he had let loose, the gentleman who started Coney Island, this idea that Americans really ought to buy American toys because if they purchase toys from the principal competitor, Germany, American children would all become essentially goose-stepping militarists. And my advisor thought this was a fascinating idea and was talking with me about it while at my very first year of graduate school. And we just talked for a little bit and uh, thought it was an absolutely fascinating idea, an opportunity to bring kind of economic history, business together with popular culture and things of that nature. So tell me the story that you tell in the book. What we're seeing is in the, say, mid-19th century, uh, late 19th century, the emergence of what we can call a mass market, that is large numbers of people from lots of different classes, all purchasing uh, the same object, in this case, again, toys. Um, as we get larger cities, as we get railroads, things like that, we have the opportunity, we as a society, to make things in one place, uh, one factory, and then distribute them around the world. So we find that toys are increasingly made in factories rather than in homes. We see that they're made in concentrated locations and then distributed worldwide. It is, in many respects, an early version of globalization, and that has implications for how we organize production, how where people work, how they spend their days. It also has implications for what people are buying and how they think of childhood, what they think about uh, what it means to be a human being, what they think their society is doing for them or and alternatively to them. Uh, a lot of the themes, I think, that we see 
in modern debates about globalization, etc., are, in fact, reiterations of debates that we saw in really the early 20th century going back into the late 19th. How did Germany come to be such a huge maker of toys, and what, what kinds of toys were they in the late 19th century? How did they become such a large producer? That's an excellent question. It's an exceedingly difficult question to answer. They, there's a history of toy production, particularly in the city of Nuremberg, that goes back some distance. Uh, Nuremberg had a reputation going back to the Middle Ages of having particularly kind of handy tinkerers, if you will. You know, they they like to make little moving toys and uh, other little doodads, if you will. Uh, there's actually a German kind of slogan or about that Nuremberger town geht durch alle Land Nuremberg toy objects things doodads go through our you know, all the lands so the, there's a history of toy production but that's this is for a very elite audience and anyone who could afford that is obvious is already doing extraordinarily well what happens i guess is there's m- many opportunities for selling things in a wide variety of areas uh, in the British Empire and whatnot. And the Germans are simply very effective at using those opportunities. They are, uh, in the mid-19th century, their businessmen are extraordinarily ruthless in cutting costs, that is to say, cutting the um, primarily the wages for workers. Uh, there's some quite dramatic declines in how much uh, people are making living off of, again, uh, certain unfortunate similarities. Um, What kinds of toys is actually, it's a much more enjoyable question. Uh, There is a dizzying array. There are certain standbys. Toy trains are kind of the classic metal toy, boys toy of the time period. You will also see, you know, real steam-powered ships, boats, little miniature boats, battleships that can go in uh, water. There's a variety of types of uh, toy trains, steam-powered, unpowered, electrical. They really liked the introduction of electrical t- um, trains because the steam-powered ones, if you think about it, you have to uh, have a heating element. So you have little alcohol-powered flames with, that your child is playing with. Not not a particularly wonderful idea. The teddy bears invented at the time by Margareta Steiff. Um, we have wax-headed dolls, porcelain-headed dolls, wooden-headed dolls. We have the early versions of erector sets. And then we, you can get into some really quite bizarre objects as well. For example, little miniature Oktoberfests. They had little Catholic altar sets. Virtually anything from the world outside, you could have kind of miniaturized and transformed into a toy. Was there anything sort of particularly German about these toys? Some themes are attempting to get at popular German themes, like a, a miniature Oktoberfest. What, uh, what what does that mean? That means you have uh, this kind of little figures who are dressed in kind of classical, kind of peasant tracht, uh, Bavarian clothing. And you'd come provided with a little table, and there'd be a serving lady with multiple krugs or steins of beer. And you could potentially get uh, little umpa bands to go with it, which you know seems pretty classically German. The Germans themselves at the time identified themselves with things like the Noah's Ark, these traditional wooden arcs with wooden animals. That They seemed to think that was somehow quintessentially German. I think it's the, the carbon wooden aspect. 
I thought the teddy bears were um, American because they were called after Teddy Roosevelt. Is that just apocryphal? The understanding in Germany is that they were invented in Germany. Uh, there's a couple stories that come out of the Steife clan. What I've seen that alleges to be from the diary of uh, Margarete Steife is her nephew had gone to a zoo and had seen the bears playing with them each other and thought that looked absolutely lovely, that you know, very childlike, very innocent. And so he came up with the idea of designing a kind of playful stuffed bear. And they took it to the annual toy fair, if you will, um, and no one bought it. No, None of the uh, toy con- um, buyers for the various companies, uh, both in Germany and the United States, were in the least bit interested. And they were on the verge of just taking it off the shelf and hiding it so that they just to be done with it. It was a little embarrassing. When along came a buyer from New York who took one look at it and said, ah, I must have it. New Yorkers will pay any price for your delightful bear. And from there, it was kind of at the height of Teddy Roosevelt's popularity. Uh, both I mean, He was a remarkably uh, popular figure both in the United States and in Europe. And so I, both the the facial expressions and the kind of playfulness reminded them of Teddy. And so that's where the name was derived. I don't know how true that is, but that's what they say. <laughs> don't they still make teddy bears, Steve? Yes, definitely. Definitely. Now, this is all really interesting, but it does seem very historical. It strikes me, though, and you sort of uh, went at this a little bit with globalization, um, that it might have parallels with today. Were the debates about toys then in any way relevant or similar to the ones that we see now? In some respects. Uh, There are two strands of argument that you can trace back then that you can hear echoes today. One is an argument about essentially labor. There were aspersions cast upon the German toy industry based upon the fact that they, in some cases, paid their regular workers, adult workers, factory workers, relatively little. But the more desperate of the case were these cottage industrialists, if you will, Heimabata. They lived at home, worked at home. Generally, it was a family, father, mother, kids. And given the working conditions, the levels of tuberculosis were two, three, four times higher than the national average. Uh, The diets were incredibly inadequate. Children oftentimes didn't go to school. So you have this kind of curious contrast between the kind of delights of particularly middle-class childhood, these toys and Christmas, et cetera, cast against children, their their contemporaries, who were working 12, 14-hour days in a single room with their parents, inhaling plaster of Paris, inhaling dust, et cetera, working with sometimes poisonous paints in order simply to stay alive. So one line of discussion was very much on that kind of social question. The other is about what moving toys, in this case, would do to the child that plays with them. I noticed while I was writing this, my my wife presented me with an article from a parenting magazine about the impact of computer games on children. The article alleged that, or stated that some psychologists believe that, indeed, children playing too often with uh, small video games, young children, become less imaginative than their contemporaries that do not. And you saw that self-same argument developing really, uh, say, 1904, 1905, 
about whether or not moving toys, like dolls that move by themselves or trains that move by themselves, might somehow damage children, uh, destroy their capacity for imagination. And in the rhetoric at the time, the analysis at the time, there was a great deal of anxiety that somehow this would fundamentally undermine their autonomy. Many Germans at the time, it's a basically a romantic idea going back to the turn of the 18th century, suggested that it's through the capacity for imagination, creativity, that you are able to elaborate kind of an authentic self, discover who you really are. And if you cannot imagine, if you cannot use your fantasy properly, you can't figure out who you are. You can't define yourself. And you just kind of are what people tell you are. And consequently, people like Fernando Avernarius were absolutely terrified that Germans were inadvertently raising a whole generation of um, unthinking automatons. Well, mindless automatons. There you go. Anyway, you're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, and I'm Nora Flaherty. In a few minutes on the show, we'll learn more about one of the most endearing and irritating aspects of modern life, the commercial jingle. But first, more about our relationship with toys with my guest David Hamlin. Hamlin's an assistant professor of history at Fordham, and his book Work and Play is from University of Michigan Press. Let's hear the rest of that conversation. Do we give toys a job besides just, you know, helping to amuse our kids? Oftentimes we do. Presently, everything from baby Einstein to uh, leapsters, etc., we have a whole industry devoted to educational play. Uh, we clearly believe that you can somehow learn something through the act of play. That is not a universal view. I mean, certainly we give many presents of toys that are we conceive of purely as amusement. But there is also clearly this other trend line of thought that suggests that we should properly learn something about our worlds through play. We have that very, a very similar divide back in 1900 or even earlier. Actually, we can push it back to 1800, into the late 18th century. Play is a process of self-amusement, but it's also a process of exploration, and consequently, it's not difficult to imagine how play becomes a means of exploring the world. Rousseau in Emile says explicitly, I don't want any books for my kid, for my charge, until he's a teenager. I want my, my charge, Emile, to simply play. And in the process of playing, he will learn everything he needs to know about how, about nature. And by learning how nature works, he learns reason. Uh, that is a particularly powerful expression of this general idea. There are alternative ways of, ima of imagining how play can educate. I identify broadly two trends. One is to see play as teaching you how the world works, as Rousseau put it. Um, you will learn how round pegs don't fit in square holes and things of that nature. You can also learn through imitation how the adult world works. Pretend to be a cowboy. Pretend to be an explorer. Pretend to be a blacksmith. Uh, the child of a blacksmith pretends to be a blacksmith. The other alternative, the more romantic version, is that somehow you learn creativity, you learn fantasy, you kind of exercise it like you would a muscle. And in that respect, you learn something that's much more fundamental to being human. You don't learn a skill. You don't learn how gravity works. You learn what it means to be human. You learn who you are. Who, there's this kind of kernel of 
of you-ness, if you will, of yourself that is somehow deep within you. And it can only come out through the act of creativity, through the act of unselfconscious play. And it's through that that we learn to be ourselves. Um, so you can you feel like you can really look at a culture using the toy as a lens, I guess, is a kind of a weird metaphor, but... No, it, it's actually an apt metaphor. Um, I suspect that with many consumer goods, you have a remarkable window into a, uh, into a society. And I think a window is also an apt metaphor. You don't see the entire house. You only see part of it through material objects, material culture, in this case through toys. You can see, you can understand a certain amount about a society. You can understand uh, its social relations. You can understand a great deal of the ideas that motivate in, uh, a society. You certainly can't see everything. What kinds of stuff can you see? Well, you can see how they want to construct ideas of gender, for example. You can see what they believe is important about the future with toys in particular. You're, you're in many respects, trying to construct something for the future. You can see what a society believes should be important to itself. Then in the arguments that surround it, you can get a sense of what a society thinks is wrong about itself. And if we move beyond the kind of cultural analysis, we can also get a glimpse into what forces are shaping people's daily lives, how they work, where they live, what resources they have to feed, clothe, amuse themselves, and the, again, the self-aware criticism of that, some senses of social justice, uh, questions of how you create prosperity, how you distribute prosperity. Obviously, it is the holiday season, and this is the biggest toy time of the year. Yes. As somebody who thinks about toys a lot, what sort of issues come up for you during the holiday season? There's a lot of fascinating elements to Christmas. It's a strange holiday in a lot of ways. It, it's a very traditional holiday, but it has been fundamentally transformed in the last 200 years. When you go back to the 18th century, the holiday, more or less, it, I don't want to say ignored the family, but was about your connections with the larger society. You didn't have gifts under a tree, and it wasn't parents giving gifts to children. People would show up at your door, and you'd give them things. Generally, it was uh, social inferiors who would come to your door, and you'd give them something useful. You'd give them you know, a coat. You'd give them, um, oh, I don't know, a goose, something like that. And what happens in the 19th century, early 19th century, is it, it comes inside, if you will. Uh, it gets domesticated. And you, the gifts, instead of flowing outside of the home, start flowing inside, inside the home. And that gives an entirely different cast to it. It gives, changes what you want to give. It's no fun to give your kid um, a goose. coat. Or a goose. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're going to do that anyway, right? Uh, one of the chapter titles... Uh, was from a novelist who's looking back at his own childhood. And you know what? Underwear is not Christmas. Underwear I'm going to get anyway. It's toy soldiers that are Christmas. And again, that what we see is a change in the holiday. And so the fascinating thing is we have this idea of Christmas as this incredibly deeply rooted holiday, which it is, but it's not rooted in the way we think it is. And the other, the other kind of fascinating twist to this is, of course, when the gifts are flowing around inside the home, from parents to children, from parent to parent, you don't want to give something from within the house. It's kind of a ridiculous thought. 
you know, picking up a little tchotchke and said, hey, here's your Christmas present. You have to go outside the house and bring something in. That is to say, you commercialize it. So Christmas, at the moment we domesticate it, at the moment that we make Christmas about the family, we also commercialize it. And to this day, we lament that. We love Christmas as a family holiday. I watched just what yesterday, the Charlie Brown Christmas special. It's a wonderfully powerful lament of the commercialization of Christmas. And, and you know, it, it, you know, it gets to me every single time. But it's l- lamenting something that is intrinsic to the holiday. So that's always, every Christmas, that's the most striking thing. We love Christmas. We love a certain, the um, family aspect to it. And we lament something that is intrinsic to that. Well, let me ask you one more question. Do you, you have kids? No. Ah, yes. Okay. So what are their favorite toys and how do you feel about that? Um, what are their favorite toys? It, it, well, that seems to change. The most enduring toy has been this parts of a play kitchen. The most enduring play is uh, restaurant. From time to time, one of our uh, daughters will show up and demand to know what we would like to eat. And then we get these little plastic plates with plastic food on it. What do I think about it? I Personally, I rather love it insofar as they're, they're inventing their own kind of social situations. They're inventing their own uh, worlds and maneuvering increasingly adeptly through them. My youngest is one-year-old, and for the most part, he likes to hit me. But um, So I'm not certain how to, constant, how to put that. Do they have uh, – they don't have video game systems or anything? We've got two little Leapsters that are vaguely educational video games. And they play with them for a little bit. Um, then the, you know, they've played with that particular game cartridge for a while, and then that will be set aside. And there are a handful of computer games that we have, but for the most part – they seem to really enjoy imaginative play. Uh, my eldest daughter loves to play school uh, because presumably because she insists on being the teacher. So, <laughs> well, great. Um, well, David Hamlin is an assistant professor of history at Fordham, and his book Work and Play is out from the University of Michigan Press. David Hamlin, thanks so much. Thank you. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. That's coming up at market for toys is certainly well-established today, and so is the world of mass marketing. We hear a lot these days about modern advertising methods like viral marketing and street teams, but one of the most powerful and lasting arrows in marketers' quiver is the jingle. Chances are there is at least one jingle that torments you more or less constantly, and you are really not alone in that. Producer Richard Paul has this look at exactly why it is that jingles get so irrevocably stuck in our heads. For some reason, they're just stuck inside your head. 
My beer is Rangel, the dry beer. Think of Rangel. We work hand in hand to give beer. you the best deal. Get that Mack hike feeling behind the wheel. Sing around the campfire. The Join the campfire, girls. When you Join take the laughter, self-defense, then you too can say, Nobody bothers me. Dormans. Dormans. Moo, 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 moo. Ernie von Schladorn, Main Street in Monomony Falls. We tend to see jingles as a product of radio and TV, but they are much older than that. Randall Rothenberg is a columnist with Advertising Age. Whether it goes back to the medicine shows or uh, street corner criers, we've had the functional equivalent of uh, jingles. Jingles are probably as old as advertising, and advertising is as old as human beings engaging in commercial transactions with each other. Never borrow money needlessly just when you must. Then borrow from the oldest company from folks you trust. The idea of using music in advertising was adapted to the media age, and with the birth of radio in the 20s, jingles had a good long run. During their heyday, you could find jingles in every musical genre. Whether you liked rockabilly... Show tunes. I took my two hands and built an automobile. Hey, Jingles even had white guys rapping long before Eminem. Hey, hey, Susie Q, what's cooking with you? Your teeth look whiter than no, no, no. For years, the thinking on Madison Avenue and in a thousand tiny local advertising agencies was the best way to make people remember your message grab them with a song. Randall Rothenberg says there was a very pat formula to this. The trick to making it work was stick very closely to the styles that resonated deep in the consumer's brain. The most popular jingles uh, are really like nursery rhymes. They're extremely simple. They've got a very simple meter, and they've also got the same kind of simple moral messages that uh, we remember from nursery rhymes. So it makes sense that one of the longest-running jingles in advertising history was written by a woman who'd been a music teacher in the New York public schools. I don't want to grow up, buy Toys R Us kid. They got a million toys at Toys R Us that I can play with. We wanted it to sound like a, a snappy children's song that anybody could sing and had to have um, rhymes that were very easy to remember. At the same time, be able to have the kids sing back all the copy points about the store. Linda Kaplan Thaler quit teaching, and now she's an ad executive. She found no matter who she was trying to reach, she had to appeal to the child. Inside every 60-year-old person sipping tea is a 6-year-old slurping ice cream, and you have to keep that in your head when you're writing a jingle. I don't want to grow up, because maybe if I did, I couldn't be a Toys R Us kid. So rule number one was keep it simple. Next, you had to make it sound like music we all love. If you go back to the pop music of the 50s and 60s, Um, Anybody who plays music will tell you that most of those songs are based on the same chord progression. It's a 1-6-2-5 progressions or even simpler 1-4-5 progressions. Well, it's the same thing with most jingles as well. So in other words, the reason you remember this... ...is the same reason you remember this... 
like a cigarette should. It's simple, it's repetitive, it's basically an AA rhyme. Then it's got that really interesting uh, hesitation in the second line, very similar to something you find in a lot of pop songs. But jingles weren't just repetitive, they were also repeated hour after hour. The great jingles of uh, the mid-20th century lasted for years and years and years. But times change. Back when jingles were popular, you only had three TV networks. Today, if you wanted to pummel an audience with a jingle, you'd have to blanket 80 cable channels. That's what killed jingles, which started to disappear from network TV in the 1980s. No advertiser can afford to have continual repetitive messages on all those networks. And even if they could, they'd still have to hope that the audience was even watching TV when their ad was on instead of playing a video game or watching a DVD or downloading music or, you know, like reading. And without that repetition, the jingle and the advertiser's message just won't stick in your head. So if you're wondering what jingles your kids will remember when they're your age, you can stop. These days, it's just cheaper to use, say, Rock and Roll by Led Zeppelin to sell Cadillac Escalades. Advertisers call this borrowing interest. No, the glory days of the advertising jingle are over. But no worries. If you're of a certain age, you can be sure somewhere in the deepest recesses of your mind, they live on. I'm Richard Paul. Dry Clean Depot, dollar nine nine. Oh, lovely. Dry Clean Depot, in by five, out by nine. Nine nine cent for lawn shirt. Dry Clean Depot, you can believe. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. You can find our podcast at WFUV.org, and you can listen to past shows in our audio archives at that same address. You can also email us if you have any comments or questions about the show. Our address is Fordham Conversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening. Have a fabulous weekend, and if it applies, have a very, very Merry Christmas.